through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Finished up Proverbs last week, and now we head into the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, uh, gentlemen are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and just get their attention. They'll give you a Bible, and uh, not just for tonight, but if you don't own a Bible, uh, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. So we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we read... Beginning in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, uh, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that's quite a way to start a letter, isn't it? Um, So the author is undoubtedly uh, King Solomon, written by him. He was, as he's described here in verse 1, He was one of the sons of King David. Uh, The author is uh, identified here as a king in Jerusalem in verse 1. And following the death of Solomon, Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of uh, Judah. Each one of them had separate kings. And so this had to be written by one of three kings, either King Saul or by King David or Solomon. And we know uh, that the, what we're reading here doesn't really fit or match with uh, certainly King Saul's life and uh, nor with uh, King David's life. The content of the book only uh, matches the reign of Solomon, materially speaking, the wealth that he had, and then also his uh, personal spiritual journey. He does declare himself to be the preacher. This is kind of the uh, title that he gives to himself. And so the entire book is written as a sermon. It's intended to be spoken to an audience. And he has a message that he wants to speak to everyone who reads the Bible. And he wants them to understand a single message from uh, this great book. So it's intended to be taught and to impart its wisdom to an audience. Now the book Uh, We're told in verse 3, notice he says in verse 3, What profit has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? That phrase, that three-word phrase, under the sun, is very significant related to understanding uh, this book. The book of Ecclesiastes is an attempt by King Solomon to experience uh, meaning, and uh, purpose in life, to discover the meaning and purpose of life under the sun, under the S-U-N, not the S-O-N, the Son of God, Jesus. So he wants, he's uh, heading out on a journey, a spiritual journey, to try and see if he can discover the meaning and the purpose of life in the context of creation, leaving God out of his thinking And so uh, we're going to skip the Creator. Uh, We're not going to worship the Creator. We're going to worship the creation. We're going to try and understand what we can from the creation. We'll just jettison God. And now we're going to try and find out what the meaning and the purpose of life is solely on the basis of uh, creation, under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is repeated 29 times in the book. And uh, Solomon was uniquely qualified to find the meaning and the purpose of life 
in the physical creation, if anyone could find the meaning and the purpose of life in physical things, uh, he was uniquely qualified uh, to do that. And uh, and so the uh, virtually unlimited amounts of money that he had. During his reign, it was said that silver was counted as nothing. They were like dirt cloths. Ever, ever have a dirt clawed fight with your brother growing up or whoever? I mean, this silver was like that. Everything was gold while Solomon reigned. There was nothing. Silver. <laughs> so this guy had money like you just can't believe. He had a thousand wives and concubines. You want to try like our culture is trying to find us? It's all found in uh, the sexual relationship and obsession with that and all. Hey, he had as, as many people as you wanted to be with. He had to be with him. So he had all of this wealth. He had not only did, uh, was he blessed with incredible amount of wealth, but he was also invested, uh, it, it had a tremendous amount of time. There was peace during the reign of Israel. Uh, he wasn't fighting wars. He could give himself now to this uh, wholeheartedly, to fully explore really every whim of his heart in a way that uh, you and I are not able to, the average person isn't able to. So no limitations in terms of his wealth, his power, his uh, mind-altering substances. He tries to get into drinking and all this kind of stuff. Uh, education, relationships, again, sexual expression. And the reason that all of this is very important to understand is because so many people, um, and even Christians, and uh, you might be one of them here today, so many people live in this world and they believe, if only I had this thing under the sun, that I would be satisfied and fulfilled, I would be, have discovered the meaning and the purpose of life. And so no matter how much money they make, they make this amount of money, and then they determined they thought they were going to be happy and find fulfillment and satisfaction. Once they made this amount of money, they make that amount of money, and they're not satisfied. And so it must mean I need to make twice that amount uh, of money. Or if I buy a boat and that doesn't satisfy, I need a bigger boat and so forth. And a lot of people, most people, I would say, certainly apart from the Lord, is the idea that I'm just one relationship, one hobby, one possession, uh, one degree away from the silencing in my heart of what is the meaning and the purpose of life. And they spend their whole lives spinning in the same thing, in this same kind of cycle. And then... Once we kind of uh, crash and burn related to that, a person does, then the person can sit back and say, well, I would have found it on the path of money, but I never got enough money. Or I never had enough relationships. Or I never had the time to get all of the degrees that I wanted. So God takes this guy named Solomon and he takes him out in human history, gives him unlimited resources and says, 
I'm going to let this guy search for the meaning of life and satisfaction under the sun apart from God, and he's going to do it for all of you so that no one will live under the illusion that if only I had more, that I'd be able to find it. We looked to Solomon and Solomon and realized he did it for all of us. And if Solomon couldn't find it with all that he had uh, available to him, then why waste our time on a similar uh, search? And so the Lord uh, gave him that, and he's kind of an example in human history, all of this, so that we will take as the preacher not saying, well, I've got to learn it for myself, will say, listen, Solomon didn't find it on that path. I'm not going to find it uh, on that path either. Now, his conclusion, after a lifelong uh, search of trying to find meaning and purpose in the context of creation, uh, independent of God, independent of the Creator, he tells us his conclusion is in verse 2, everything is vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so that's his proposition. Now, anyone, probably uh, every Bible teacher realizes that in a sermon you've got to have a propositional statement. There has to be one point that you're making related to that sermon uh, that is just loud and clear, and it needs to be simple in one sentence. And so he gives us his propositional statement in verse 2 before we read the whole sermon all the way there through to chapter 12. And his point that he wants to make is that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That was the conclusion that he came to related to his search to find meaning and purpose in life in the context of creation. And so he concluded that it was vanity in verse 2, but I want you to notice down in verse 14 because it's just great. He said, I have seen all of the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity. There's the word again. And then he says, grasping for the wind in the new King James. In the old King James, I like it better, vexation of spirit. He comes, he searched it out. He searched it out in every way that you can search this out and says, all right, I'm going to find satisfaction in life independent of God. He comes to the end of his search and he says, it's vanity and vexation of spirit. It is emptiness and frustration. And I don't know if there are two better words to describe life lived apart from God, not only in this age, but in every age in human history than those two words, emptiness and frustrating. That's what life is. And there's reasons uh, for it. The word vanity means a vapor. It means empty. It means futile. It means meaningless. It occurs 37 times in the book. Frustrating. And he says life is as frustrating as trying to grab the wind. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. You were frustrated. <laughs> so, I mean, unless if you were coherent, you were frustrated because you can't capture it. And so trying to find the meaning and purpose of life independent of God to capture that is as impossible uh, as trying to grasp the wind because he is the meaning and the purpose of life for us as human beings. And that uh, phrase, vexation of spirit, is repeated nine times 
in the book. And the reason that life is empty and frustrating apart from God, it can't provide satisfaction in terms of finding a solution or finding satisfaction in terms of under the creation is that you cannot satisfy a spiritual hunger or need with a physical something. You can't do it. And we were created spiritual beings. We were created for relationship with God. And no amount of personal relationships, no amount of money, no amount of power, no matter amount of titles, no amount of degrees will satisfy us. When you've been made for creation with fellowship with God, any, if you make anything and it is made for this purpose until it is involved in that purpose, it's going to be empty and frustrating for that. And the same thing is true of us. We've been made for fellowship with God and we, life will be empty and frustrating until we're engaged in that relationship. So you cannot meet a spiritual need in a person's life through a physical something. You cannot meet a spiritual need. I'm in the United States of America. You've got to do this in triplicate because our whole country is convinced that you can meet a spiritual need in life with a physical something. And it just simply can't happen. In John chapter 4, Jesus was talking with the woman at the well. They're having this conversation And Jesus spoke to her and said concerning the water of the well, the physical water, he said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And he recognized she's got a spiritual thirst. And and no physical anything is going to solve a a physical water is not going to solve a, a spiritual thirst. But Jesus went on to say, but whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In other words, Jesus said, I come into your life. I'm not only going to satisfy your thirst, I'm going to turn you into a spiritual drinking fountain so that people can then come to you and come into contact with me through your life. I'll do more than uh, just satisfy you. Now, the entire lesson of the book is found at the very end of the book. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let me read it to you. And I hope it doesn't spoil the ending for you. So, but this is the lesson he learned. All right? He tried to find the meaning of life under the sun, the context of creation. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Now, we're just beginning the book. If you are reading through the book and you're in the middle of his search and all of these kind of things, pretty soon they're moving anything away that you could do harm to yourself with. It's quite depressing in some ways. And uh, uh, so that's a fabulous way to introduce a book, isn't it, to an audience here. But, uh, But you get to the ending, and this is the point he's making. Here's the conclusion, and by the time we get to chapter 12, we're ready for it. This is the conclusion of the whole matter. This is what life is all about. Fear God and keep His commandments, 
for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so fulfillment in life can only be found in a relationship with God, in a certain kind of relationship with God, an obedient relationship to God, with God, which is the only real uh, relationship with God. So we have been created for relationship with God. We can only find fulfillment when we are engaged in what we've been created for. I love the verse in Romans, uh, or Revelation chapter uh, 4, verse 11, and I like it best in the old King James. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And then here it is, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We are and we were created to bring pleasure to God. And until we are engaged in the thing that we've been created for, everything in life is going to be empty and frustrating, at least for a thinking person. Uh, some people, they deal with it by just getting blotto all of the time, and they don't realize there's an internal search going on inside of them for the meaning of life that they give up on, and so now they just want to stay high uh, all of their life. Now, one other thing by means of introduction, and uh, then we'll get into the book formally. The book has that one main supreme lesson within it uh, that Meaning and purpose is found in a relationship with God. The reason that that's important is that many of the cults, non-Christian cults, they will quote and try and endorse uh, some of their false doctrines and their heresies from the book of Ecclesiastes. They will pull out verses and say, yes, but look at this. This is what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what you have to remember when you deal with that is from the beginning of the book here in chapter 1 all the way through, he's not making sense until he gets to chapter 12 at the end. He stumbles on truth here and there. And we'll make note of that. But the, the fact of the matter is, is what we discover here is just humanism. It's just him thinking out loud, trying to discover the purpose of life under the sun. And so unless you can find another section or passage in the Bible that confirms something that's taught in the book of Ecclesiastes, then you have to be very, very careful with it in terms of, you know, building that into some kind of a main doctrine. Well, let's formally begin here now in verse 3. He says, now is we are able to eavesdrop on his journey. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south, bringing all of its pollen in the springtime in the central valley. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. And all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers came. There they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear 
with hearing. And so he declares that under the sun, life is, man's life is just comparatively insignificant. It's pointless in the grand scheme of things, in terms of the cycles of nature. He talks about the sunrise, the sunset, the wind, and uh, the whole uh, cycle of nature related to rivers and rain and back to the sea again to become clouds and rivers, uh, rain and rivers, and, and all over again. And so nature just continues, he's saying, on this monotonous course all the way through history. It doesn't change, but men come and go, generation comes, generation goes. And in verse 3, he points, uh, he expresses his frustration with it when he says, what profit? <laughs> In other words, what's the point? Our lives don't make any lasting difference at all in uh, history at all. We don't have any long-lasting impact. We don't produce any long-term change in the world. The sun rises, it sets, the wind blows, and the seas and the rivers, they do their dance, and we're just as insignificant as bugs in the middle of all of that uh, cycle. So you see what what this does for your self-esteem. I But it's very, very true if you're going to take God out of your thinking. I mean, it leads to a fairly depressed life. Um, I remember uh, some years ago where I was uh, planting new shrubs and uh, new trees in a house that uh, Karen and I owned. And a funny thing hit me as I was putting those into the ground. There was the realization that these things are going to outlive me. I said, man, I'm putting something in the ground that is going to see history in the United States of America that I will never, ever see. And there's that sense, that melancholy that, man, I, here I'm going to come and go and these shrubs that I bought at Home Depot for eleven ninety nine are going to outlive me? Well, I'm going to write a book. It's called The Melancholy Gardener. But you think about things when you're gardening. And he's just thinking, I mean, the whole cycle's going to go on. I'm going to come and go. Nobody's going to remember. They don't remember whole generations of people that come and they, they go. And then he complains in verse 9 that there's nothing new. The cycle never changes. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And then this is significant. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before us. And so he basically is saying that apart from God, life is boring. It really is boring. And then he goes on in verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who come after. And so his complaint is, everyone who lives is quickly forgotten when they die. And so the life that we live will be forgotten as quickly as the life that we live. You think about how many people can name off the top of their head their great-grandparents. Not that many. We forget fast. Two generations, man, unless you cured polio or something, uh, unless you made some scientific discovery that changed the way the whole world is, uh, uh, you know, looked at. Man, all of us are forgotten very, very 
quickly. And you think about the billions and the billions of people that have lived throughout human history, and there are probably only about 200 lives that are uh, significant enough or infamous enough to live on through history. And so there is that idea that, man, I'm just in the... I'm in the middle of a long play, and I'm a part of a cast. I'm on that stage for about three seconds, and then it's over for me. And so it's a little bit depressing, isn't it? Um, We'll serve you some coffee or something afterwards, something to perk you up, some five-hour energy. I don't know what we're going to do, something that's lawful. And But this is what he's dealing with. So that... That is, he says, life under the sun, without seeing life in the context of God. Yet we think about how different life is for the child of God when we realize that we have been created by God, that we are known by God. God knows me, and he knows you, and we know God, and God loves us and we love Him, that we are, as human beings, the apex of His creation, that we weren't created for the earth, but the earth was created for us, and that life on planet earth doesn't represent the pinnacle for us, but that this life is merely preparation for heaven. And that's all it is. You say, I disagree with that. Okay. Disagree with me on that. How old are you? I'm 34. Okay, come and talk to me when you're in your 50s, 60s, or 70s. And walk closely with the Lord, and one day you come to realize that that the meaning and purpose in life is that this life is a preparation for an eternity with, with God. And so we know, unlike Solomon here, we know that our lives are not pointless. Our lives are not profitless. We have a relationship with God, and out of that relationship, we live to strengthen the kingdom of God, to advance the kingdom of God in this world. We're involved in something that is not only going to outlive my trees and my shrubs, but going to outlive the heavens and the earth, and it's called the kingdom of God. And so our lives do have eternal significance and there's eternal reward. And so, uh, but here he is, he's trying to look at things apart from all, all of that. But our lives as Christians, they, it has eternal um, uh, uh, significance. I like the fact that where he, he basically talks about there's nothing new under the sun and all of that in verses 9 uh, through 11. And he's essentially just saying that life is boring. And life is boring apart from God. How much pasta can you eat? How much food can we eat? He who eats the most food wins. There's a, there's a license plate holder. How many times can we go out to eat? How many movies can you watch in life? And ultimately, all of it, no matter what it is, it has to become boring. It just does. You do it and say, man, this is empty. This is just the same old thing. And the search is going on in our hearts. I'll tell you, the Christian life is never boring. (laughs) It is never boring. Never boring for me. I doubt it's boring for you as well. 
most exciting life that a person can live. Surrender to God's will every morning and say, Lord, now do your thing through me today, whatever that is, and help me just to have eyes to recognize it while you're doing it. And, uh, man, that, that's the life of faith, heading out. And, and faith is never boring. You think about the Apostle Paul. Did he live a boring life? No, you can describe his life a lot of different ways, but it's not boring. The life that Jesus lived, was it a boring life? Not not boring at all. Most exciting life that was ever lived. And the Holy Spirit is living that life through us as the body of Christ every single day. It is a wonderful life. Answers to prayer. Miracles. Divine appointments where you walk away and you go, God, only you could have done that. I mean, he leaves his fingerprints everywhere. And so our life is not boring. And knowing God, serving God doesn't result in a boring life. The world tries to portray Christianity in that way. And I think they're just trying to take the, uh, the, the attention off of how boring their life is. That's the most exciting person, uh, life a person can live. And, uh, Remove God, and life is boring, and it's meaningless. He talked there as well about uh, being forgotten, and that's, that's something that's significant. People deal with that, and it's just like, man, here I am. I'm X number of years old, and I'm probably going to die sometime out there a little bit, no doubt about it, apart from the rapture. And, and uh, so my life is, you know, just f- forgotten. But even if our lives are forgotten by people in general, or if everybody forgets our lives, God never, ever forgets our lives. Do you know that God knows you by name? You ever try to memorize one page of the phone book? He knows every one of his children by name. The Bible says that our names are written in the book of life. If you could access the book of life tonight, you could turn and there would be your name as a Christian right in that book. We are not forgotten, not forgotten at all. In fact, the Bible teaches, Jesus taught, that not only does he know our name, but he knows us so intimately and he's so current in our, his knowledge of us that he knows the very number of the hairs on our head. Why is that significant? Because that's always changing. So it isn't just like, wow, okay, there's the number for him, there's the number for her. But at, the number's different before You comb your hair or you get in the shower and afterwards. That's what keeps the plumbers busy and then we're clogging those drains. And so we're never, ever forgotten. Well, in verse 12, he moves on to the vanity or the futility of human wisdom. And he declares that it only increases grief and sorrow in a person's life. And so... He said, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. 
And I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that's under under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which uh, they may be exercised. And I've seen all of the works that are done under the sun and indeed all its vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I've attained greatness. I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he gives himself fully now to searching out and educating himself in human wisdom, and his conclusion in verse 14 is that all of that leaves you uh, empty and frustrated as anything else. And he gives the reasons. In verse 15, he said, first, because man's wisdom cannot fix the most important problems in life. He says, what's crooked can't be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. It cannot be made straight. In problems in life, man can't make those problems straight. He can't fix those problems. And what is Lacking in terms of man, in terms of his ability to fix problems and his understanding, what he's lacking can't even be numbered. There are too many gaps in his thinking and there's too much that he doesn't know. Man cannot fix himself by his own wisdom for the simple reason that man is his own biggest problem. And that's the truth. And so we need someone who is bigger than us to identify our problems and then give us the wisdom and the knowledge to address those problems in our life and to fix them. The second reason he gives for why wisdom and knowledge didn't bring this kind of satisfaction is, he said in verse 18, is because increasing wisdom and knowledge only produces grief and sorrow. And it's because the more that you know, the more you know that you don't know. That's just the way that it is. And a person who is knowledgeable on any single subject in life, any significant subject, will realize that I can spend my whole life studying this and all I will ever be confronted with is how, despite how much I know, is how much I still don't know related to this question or this issue. And so since the more you know, the more we know, the more we realize that we don't know. And since a person here, as Solomon is doing, is attempting to live life under the sun independent of God, then you are not allowed to go where your ignorance is intended to take you, and that is to God. Our ignorance in life is intended to bring us to God, where we look and say, all right, I tried it. As a part of my testimony, I tried it. I thought I was so smart for it wasn't a very long period of time. So I'm going to get some kind of an award for that. 
But I thought I was smart enough, going to go out there. I knew better, all of this kind of stuff and out there. And then I realized very, very quickly that I had significant ignorance. But our ignorance is intended to bring us to God. It's a good thing when it does that. But if a person's going to live under the sun and refuse to believe in the existence of God, then all I've got is my ignorance and everybody else's ignorance. And then it becomes an ignorance in ch- exchange. It's like square dancing together with one another's ignorance. This intellectual wisdom inbreeding that just produces more and more insanity. And, and so if all we're left with is our own ignorance as human beings, then uh, all of that is going to be faithful to produce grief and sorrow in our life. All true wisdom and knowledge points us to God. Always. Because he's home plate. He is the do not stop, pass, go, get there, collect your $200. He's that place. You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> he's what it's all about. And, and so wisdom, all true wisdom and knowledge, it leads a person to God. So you sit down. Maybe some of you do this. It's a horrible habit. So don't shout out and wives don't uh, jab on your husband. Or boyfriend here. So you sit down at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. Women, you're not immune to this either. You turn on the computer and you read all of the news about what's going on in the world. Isn't that a perky little thing to do? So just, just I want to get a good night's sleep. I'm just going to check the headlines before I do so. Or boy, I want to start the day, and so I'm going to check out the headlines, see if what. Putin's doing now or whether, you know, Iran has shot missiles at Israel or whatever, you know, it's all kind of know we know what's going to kind of take off on all of this. So you sit down and you start to look at the headlines on the computer, all of the political news, all of it's just all so good and perky, isn't it? The economic news and then the crime, what human beings are doing to one another. And you get up from the computer and you are wiser than you've ever been. You are more knowledgeable than you have ever been about the world's condition. But what's the result? Grief and sorrow. Always. Why? Again, because man's wisdom is not only creating problems of its own politically and economically and socially and morally, but it can provide no answers to man's greatest problems. All it can do is study and educate us concerning the problems. But if it's not going to allow God into the picture, then we don't have. It doesn't offer any real solutions. And so the more you know and the fallenness of the world, the more you have to worry about. That's just the fact of the matter. And the more you know, the more it hurts. So... If I'm going to become educated in man's wisdom and knowledge, I have to inevitably be massively educated in the significant problems that are facing mankind as a whole. But if I'm not also provided with a satisfactory 
explanation or solution to those problems, then you're educating me on concerning a mountain of problems that I can't fix. If you have me trying to figure this world out independent of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of human history, then I'm not going to be able to make any sense of of anything in life. And so what you're going to do is if you take God away, all the world can do is educate me concerning the problems of man, but deny me access to the one that can answer those problems and provide us with solutions. And the result is a result of that's going to be grief and and sorrow and quite possibly uh, people harming themselves as a result. I was reading a, a study recently that I saw that reported that the suicide rate among mental health workers in the United States of America, and uh, including psychiatrists and uh, psychologists, it is twice as high as the suicide rate among general physicians, which is alarming because the suicide rate among physicians is twice the national average of the average uh, person and uh, in the general population. So can you imagine working in mental health today and not knowing the Lord? I can't. I can't imagine um, going to O'Brien's today and not knowing the Lord to buy some tuna fish. But can you imagine being in mental health today where you are dealing with all of your own personal problems, you are processing a world that is collapsing before your very eyes, and you have a workload, a full workload of people coming to you that cannot cope with their problems, and so now you have to take them, become a part of your problem solving in order to, uh, to help them because they're having difficulty nav- navigating life with only, and, and now you're going to pro- deal with your problems, the world's problems, uh, their problems with only man's wisdom. No, you can't access God. You can't access His solutions. You can't a- access His explanations. Nothing like that. Now, overall, uh, the suicide rates in the United States, they've increased very sharply over the last decade. The latest results that I could find ended in the decade of uh, 2010, up 15% overall in the United States. There are some groups that uh, age groups that have jumped 30% in that period of time. That's 30%. That's a very significant jump. And there are certain age groups and certain uh, sexes, for instance, one age group involving men, the uh, uh, suicide rate has jumped 50% in just 10 years. And suicide has passed traffic accidents as the top cause of injury-related deaths in the United States of America since 2009. And the researchers say the same, the data is exactly the same for the European Union, for Canada, and for China. And all of this is doubly disturbing because as one expert in the field put it, suicide is vastly underreported We know we're not counting all suicides. 
And if you're in law enforcement or in fields that deal with coming to a scene afterwards, and sometimes it's inconclusive whether it was suicide or not, and it can't say conclusively that it was, but boy, it sure looks like that. That doesn't get counted. A lot of death certificates put other causes of death on it depending on different circumstances. And this doesn't even count the number of people who attempt to take their lives on an annual basis and are successful. These are just the people that are successful. You say, why, why are you depressing us related to this? Well, not intentionally, but here's the point I want to make. We have no idea how great a price people are paying because so many of our leaders and so many of our educators have made it a concerted effort to rid our schools and our public squares of God, of His truth, and of His wisdom. And they are determined to make People live under the sun, and they are condemning them to the book of Ecclesiastes, and the people don't even know that that's the life that they're being condemned to. And here people are left without any thought of God, that God doesn't exist, that He doesn't have answers, and they're trying to figure out life on their own. We cannot figure out life on our own. We cannot handle the problems that we are facing individually in our own lives on our own. We need to be led to a rock that is higher than us, that is the Lord uh, Himself. And so you've got this generations now of Americans, and it's all around the world in these communist countries and all where godlessness is a religion of its own. And you've got these people who are trying to navigate life in their own strength. And then all of these leaders and politicians and, and PhDs, and not everybody who has a PhD in this, in this category. But you know what I'm saying They accomplish this. They do this great crime against their fellow human beings. And then they congratulate themselves on their success. We're getting rid of God. And they toast one another at their banquets and give one another awards and all of that. And they never allow themselves to face the part that they, uh, among others, play in producing the breakdown of our society and our culture that is at the foundation of statistics like this. People have a lot of blood on their hands. Have a lot of blood on their hands. You take God away from people and you don't leave Him as an option for them and you indoctrinate them in that position and you force them into the book of Ecclesiastes but you deny them chapter 12. No wonder why we have the problems that we have. You remember a number of years ago when uh, they took prayer out of school, and and I and I understand, you know. And then they remove God, any mention of God from school, and now you got to take. They're fighting. The atheists are always fighting every month, you know, to get it removed from the Pledge of Allegiance because it was added later, and all of this stuff. But anywhere there's any mention of God, the attempt to remove, you know, the, any 
uh, idea that he exists. And so this very, very concerted effort uh, that goes on. And people were warning, Christians were saying, you know, listen, you take God out of school and, and we can trace all of these problems back to that point in the United States of America. I don't know, you know, how that you can say that maybe... M- 100% accurately, but when people were making that claim, they were just poo-pooed by society, but even by other Christians. That's too simplistic. What are you talking about? I mean, our problems are very complex. They're very uh, difficult problems to understand and all. It can't be just as simple as removing God from people's consciousness and, and this kind of thing. And they were laughed and they were mocked, but I'll tell you the statistics are bearing them uh, right, because it got removed in school. And I've, I've heard the old joke, you know, what are we worried about prayer in school? There isn't even prayer in churches. So I get that. But it isn't an either or on these issues. God has been removed from a generation, multiplied generations at this point now. And the price that is, is being paid. You say, can it really be that simple? Well, it's not the only problem, but it is at the core of the problem, and we are denying people the the ability to run to the God who has created them to help them navigate life this side of heaven that wherein we need a creator to help us uh, to do that man 's wisdom and his knowledge uh, that limitation of man 's wisdom and knowledge it just makes people feel hopeless or um, it's just an attempt to put band-aids, really, on the problems that we face uh, as, as a world. Uh, but as Christians, one of the great things is we don't live in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm fully aware of the world's problems, uh, but I'm also aware of the solutions. Concerning an individual's problems, there is a solution, and that is that God will forgive us of our sins And he will save us and he will bring us into a personal relationship with him. And he will be faithful to be a shepherd to us throughout this life and keep every one of his promises to us. And he will be faithful to deliver us, Jesus will, one day in the presence of the Father with uh, exceeding joy, the Bible uh, says. And so he'll make us into a new creation and he'll forgive us. And then in terms of the us as Christians, the ultimate solution to the world's problems. Think about how, I think about how rich I am, and I think many of you share this with me, how wonderful it is to wake up in the morning and to realize that the world is not out of control. It looks out of control. But God declared that it would be exactly what it is now, immediately before the rapture of the church. And this world is headed right toward its God-appointed end. And you and I have been called by God to serve Him and to represent Him in this generation in human history. But we don't wonder how the world ends or how this is who's in control or think that the world is out of control. It absolutely is not out of control. God is... Uh, is in ultimate control of human history, and he is working it toward his uh, his God-appointed end. And so we have the hope and the comfort of the rapture, and again, to know that one day we will be in that heavenly scene. So because we possess God's 
wisdom and his knowledge, we're able to properly process the events of the world all around us in a way that those who only possess man's wisdom and his knowledge cannot, and in fact, not only can they not, but all uh, they can experience with their increase of wisdom and knowledge is emptiness and frustration and sorrow and grief. So we'll stop there tonight. You say, oh boy, good. Man, get that worship team back up there on the double, which is precisely what I'm going to do, by the way. You know, in the country that we live in, people's wealth are it's all most often is measured in money and material things. How much are you worth? And then it's it's a dollar amount. I mean, it, that's like the like the biggest insult you can ever say to a person is, "What are you worth?" And expecting a dollar amount as if the worth of a human being is uh, measured. In, in that kind of a way. Do you realize, for the simplest Christian who doesn't have two quarters to rub together tonight, how rich we are for knowing God? What that means, not just to our relationship with God and our spiritual health, but what that means to our mental health on a daily basis, our emotional health, on a daily basis. People look and I mean, I could pull out all kinds of statistics on drug use and on alcoholism and, and prescription drugs and all kinds of things. And I'm not saying that all prescription drugs are wrong and things, but it is clear in the world that we live in that it's breaking people. It is breaking people in a massive way, in an epidemic kind of way. But the statistics are over here about drinking and then the statistics are over here about drugs and the statistics are over here about um, suicides and the statistics are over here and nobody puts the whole thing together and realizes, hey, people are not managing life here well. And what's at the core of it? You can't take God away from people. Not in the fallenness of this world without doing terrible damage to them. And to think about the fact that we know God. And again, what that means to our emotional health, our spiritual health, our mental health on a daily basis. And before we bring the worship team up, one other thing. Sometimes we think about the book of Ecclesiastes and and it's a fabulous book, I mean, for a non-Christian to read and to pursue on all of that. And for us as Christians, we can look at it and say, well, you know, why do we really need to dig in it that way, you know? I'm already in chapter 12. I'm born again. I'm on my way. This is where people are living that you work with and that you go to school with and are in line at Costco with you and are in the grocery store with you. And it's important because the world's got us back on our heels as Christians to where it's like we're afraid to say this, we're afraid to say that, we're afraid and all that everybody's going to bite our head off and we don't know this is where people are. 
Don't believe the propaganda. Don't believe the, the brainwash machine that's going on with so much money behind it. But to just talk to a person. Say, how are you doing with life? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? What have you discovered? And then to listen to what they have to say. And then to be able to speak the truth into their life about God. And yeah, you're going to hit people who are very well adjusted and they're going to be like Solomon at the beginning of his search where it's just like, okay, well, it didn't work out there, but I'm going to go on to the next thing. But you're going to run into, in this culture, you're going to run into a, over a majority of people who have discovered that I am not coping and managing well apart from God. And then we're able to tell them about the God that they were created to have relationship with. And if you sit here this morning and you're, or this evening and you're not a Christian, this book, that's what it speaks to you. You're made for God. You're not, you're not crazy. You're not emotionally immature. You're not some kind of a kook or a weird case because you're having trouble managing life. You're just still on the search for God who wants to take you and put you under the shadow of His wing and take care of you in this life and then use you to bless others. Right after our service, there are going to be pastors and men and women up in front and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God tonight. And it really is all there for the asking and all there for the receiving. Well, let's have the worship team come out and lead us in a little bit of worship so we can just praise the Lord for not only the life that he has saved us into, but to remember, wow, Lord, thank you for saving me out of the life that I was once living. Let's give him worship and praise tonight.